Today's date is July 10th, 2022. We are reading from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, pages 90 to 91, starting when you discover a prospect to and including page 91, usually the family. Keith, Rita will be our reader, followed by a 20-minute share by Keisha L. Um, after we read the, after we, the reading, I will introduce the speaker. Um, so please, thank you. Please read, Rita. Thanks so much, Tasha. When you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about him. If he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. This advice is given for his family also. They should be patient, realizing they are dealing with a sick person. If there is any indication that he wants to stop, have a good talk with the person most interested in him, usually his wife. Get an idea of his behavior, his problems, his background, the seriousness of his condition and his religious leanings. You need this information to put yourself in his place to see how you would like him to approach you if the tables were turned. Sometimes it is wise to wait till he goes on a binge. The family may object to this, but unless he is in a dangerous physical condition, it is better to risk it. Don't deal with him when he is very drunk unless he is ugly and the family needs your help. Wait for the end of the spree or at least for a lucid interval. Then let his family or a friend ask him if he wants to quit for good. And if he would go down extreme, any extreme to do so. If he says yes, then his attention should be drawn to you as a person who has recovered. You should be described to him as one of a, one of a fellowship who, as part of their own recovery, try to help others and who will be glad to talk to him if he cares to see you. If he does not want to see you, never force yourself upon him. Neither should the family hysterically plead with him to do anything, nor should they tell him much about you. They should wait for the end of his next drinking bout. You might place this book where you can see it in the interval. Here, no, no specific rule can be given. The family must decide these things, but urge them not to be over-anxious. That might spoil matters. Usually, the family should not try to tell your story. When possible, avoid meeting a man through his family. Approach through a doctor or an institution is a better bet. If your man needs hospitalization, he should have it but not forcibly unless he is violent. Let the doctor, if he will, tell him he is something in the way of a solution. Ask. Thank you so much, Rita. Okay, now I would like to introduce our speaker, Keisha L. I'm really looking forward to hearing what she has to say to bring light to this these pages. Thank you so much, Keisha. Uh, before you begin, would you like me to give you any kind of warning? I know you're going to. Yes, that would be great. If you could give me a five minute warning, please, and a one minute. Sounds great, Keisha. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Keisha. I am a recovered compulsive eater, sugar addict, and exercise procrastinator. I am all of those things and I say them regularly and consistently 
to remind myself of where I've come from and also where I want to be. I want to start um, by saying a prayer, and those of you who'd like to join me, please do. God, we thank you so much for this beautiful program that you've given us. We thank you for this fellowship. God, I ask specifically that you would speak through me and to me. Let the words that I speak be a blessing to the hearers, those who are here live, as well as those who will hear in the podcast. I ask that you would continue to bless us with recovery and peace and unity as a fellowship. In your name I pray, amen. So I'd like to start out a little bit uh, talking a little bit about um, where I came from. Um, Very unlike me, I did not uh, make notes for this talk today. I felt like I was supposed to talk based on what God gave me, download it to me as I was talking. So I come from a family where I was raised as an only child. I had two parents. Um, I lived with both my parents. Uh, They were extremely unhappy in their relationship. Um, The circumstances of my birth were that I had a brother, an older brother who was three, who was dying of cancer while my mother was carrying me. And my mother, I now know after a lot of therapy and a lot of spiritual work, uh, was in a lot of grief. And she was also struggling with whether she even wanted another child. Um, I believe that my mother um, did not want another child. And to kind of bear that out, I found this out later as an adult that when my brother did die, I was born in June. My brother died in December. Uh, There was a family meeting and it was decided that I should go to live with my grandmother. So the first uh, year of my life, and I stayed with my grandmother for another six months. So the first year of my life, I did not bond with my mother. Um, And we had a very tumultuous relationship. One of the things that was very typical uh, in my family, like a lot of us, was to feed you to feel better. The loneliness, there was food. Uh, Being an only child, there was food. Um, In my family in particular, uh, being overweight was very normal. So uh, there was nobody pretty much that was uh, a normal weight or underweight. Uh, Just about everyone was overweight. So eating a lot, being teased about it as well, Um, was a big part of my growing up years. As I got older, uh, I learned that if I had extra money to buy snacks and food for um, my friends, that that would uh, alleviate some of the loneliness. I'm hearing some background noise. Oh, thank you. I found that uh, if I bought snacks and things for my friends, uh, I would have a decreased amount of loneliness and a sense of belonging. And so I started stealing money. I stole money from my parents uh, in order to purchase food for friends and also for myself. And that continued long after I was buying uh, food for friends. I was buying things for myself. I had food uh, in my bedroom. I had it under the bed. I had it between the bed and the box spring. 
the mattress and the box spring. I had it in the closet. So food and overeating was very much a big part of my life. Uh, and because of my family history, my background, um, it wasn't really frowned upon for me to be overweight. Um, except that my mother, um, she was very controlling and she tried to control my weight, putting me on various diets. Uh, I started dieting when I was probably 10. And what's funny is when I look at pictures of myself during uh, my pre-adolescence, I wasn't overweight. I was at the most five or 10 pounds maybe, uh, not skinny, but certainly not overweight. So I had some body dysmorphia as well because I saw myself as being extremely heavy uh, based on what was being told to me and the extra food that I was eating, but I was burning it off. You know how kids burn it off, right? Um, doing uh, gym and so forth. So as I moved into my teenage years and young adult years, um, food became more important to me. Uh, I didn't recognize at that point, I don't know when I crossed over into it being an addiction. It was a habit first and then it became an addiction meaning that I could not live without the extra food. I could not live without the sugar. I could not live without stealing food, um, eating off of people's plates when I was supposed to be scraping the food, um, pulling things out of the garbage. I've done all of that. Uh, and I started doing that in my young adulthood. Uh, in my work, um, I am a performer and I began to be, I began to get work that celebrated my size. So that didn't help. Kinda, the bigger that I was, uh, the more work that I got in that particular category as the big fun girl, uh, as the big loud girl, you know? Um, and I told myself that that was the only way that I would work that I had to remain heavy. Uh, so I walked through that for a while. Uh, maybe the third professional job that I had, I went on a tour and I had an eating buddy and we were on tour and we were eating at all these restaurants in different cities that we were in. And we got back from the tour and this eating buddy, who was my closest friend at the time, uh, called me one day and said, I need you to go with me somewhere she had found OA. She said, this is for us and you're going. <laughs> so I went. And the first meeting I identified, but you know, my brain wasn't quite ready to embrace the idea that I was a compulsive eater, that it was a, um, a disease. And that started for me an in and out and a back and forth in this program. Um, uh, I lost probably 110 pounds, uh, at least three times being in and out in this program. Um, I have left the program saying, I thinking I was cured. I came back to the program when I was on my knees, then I would leave the program because I felt like I couldn't stomach the idea of being called a compulsive overeater for the rest of my life. I just wasn't getting it long-term. When I finally got to my knees, 
recognized that I could not stop, was able to observe that I could not stop. At my top weight of 315 pounds, I decided that I wanted surgery, that surgery would do it. I had surgery, I lost about 65 pounds, and then began the climb back up the scale. I've never gotten all the way back up to 315, but I've gotten very close. I think my top weight after surgery, after losing that 65 pounds, I got back up to about 280. And I really recognized and got it in my heart, not just my head, that I was a compulsive eater and that I had a disease. And just like any other disease, I needed a treatment. I had been in and out of OA enough to know that OA was the treatment for me. Uh, and over the years, I've been in program now 36 years, celebrated 36 years, June 15th, um, in and out. The program has shifted quite a bit, in my opinion. Um, when I first came in, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about God. It was more of a diet club with support. And there was a little conversation about the big book. So when I came back fully ready and on my knees to embrace the program as is, uh, I was recommended to a vision meeting. I found a sponsor and I started studying the big book as a textbook. And my life has completely changed since then. The textbook of the big book has connected me in a spiritual way to my problem, to recognize that my eating is not just physical. My eating is spiritual. When I am disconnected from my higher power, when I am disconnected from this fellowship, I think I can do things my way. I think that I have the solution. I think that I'm smart enough. And resentment in my life is the number one offender. It is absolutely it. When I get in a place of resentment, I also get in a place of rebellion. And my rebellious, diseased mind tells me that I got this. I don't need you all. I don't need this book. I don't need a program. I got this. I am 57 years old. I can do this on my own. Well, the truth of the matter is I can't. I absolutely can't. My ego and my self-will had to be smashed. And one day at a time, I do the work to smash it. So my program today looks like um, I get up in the morning. First thing out of my mouth is thank you, God. Thank you for waking me up. Thank you for giving me a brand new day. And please help me today to be abstinent. Please help me today to be of service to somebody in whatever way that you show me that I can be. I read pages 86 and 87 every morning. I go through those prayers literally, um, asking God to direct my thinking, asking God to show me throughout the day what my next step is to be and give me everything I need to take care of every problem. And those prayers are answered on a daily basis because I believe that I am saying, God, I want your will, not mine. I want your will more than I want my will. I had a, a mentor once say, and I quote this very often, if you would learn to love God more than you want to be right or have your own way, you will stay out of deception. 
And I have found that to be true in my spiritual life, in my program life, in every way. Um, I stay out of deception when I want God's will more than I want my own or more than I want to be right or have my own way. My version of right got me up to 315 pounds. My version of right would have kept me going higher than that if I didn't stop utilizing my will more than God's. So as it relates to these pages, um, page 90, um, discovering prospects. So one of the relapses, I remember my last two relapses uh, uh, very uh, viscerally. So the first one, after I got that vision sponsor, worked the steps, was having some relief, got to step 12, and then decided I didn't really want a sponsor. I was willing to do any other service but sponsor. And I think for me, and I had sponsored before over the years, but I think for me what that was about was me not wanting to give the kind of time and effort that would be necessary to walk another person through the steps. I had done it before. I found it to be sometimes very difficult. Um, and sometimes just, I didn't have the time. I have a very erratic work schedule. And so, you know, sometimes my schedule just didn't jive with being able to talk to someone on a daily basis. And so I, I said to my sponsor at the time, you know, I'm willing to do everything else, but I don't think I can sponsor. And I love that sponsor very much, but I think she gave me some erroneous information by saying, that's okay. You don't have to. And that began my relapse. It took a little while, but I started to relapse. And I believe it was directly related to the fact that I wasn't giving the program away. I was doing service in a meeting, but I was not working with someone. That relapse lasted probably about a year, year and a half. And, um, and then I was back on my knees, recognizing I couldn't stop eating. And I was back in the rooms, uh, uh, you know, regularly and consistently and got a new sponsor. And that was the first thing that I said to her. Uh, I believe that my last relapse, no, I had talked about the last two. So that was the first one. The second one, I came back in the rooms. I got this sponsor. I was working the program. And then um, I had one bite of something, literally one bite. I was visiting family. I had an aunt who insisted at least seven times that I eat this cake she had made. I said, no, I'm not eating that. No, I'm not interested. No, I don't eat that way anymore. And she wore me down. She okay, wore me Keisha, down. just your five minute warning. Thank you. And so I ate that bite of cake and that began a seven month relapse where I couldn't stop. Came back in and the sponsor that I had, I told her about those relapses and I also told her about me not sponsoring and me thinking that that was a part of my relapse. So we worked through the steps again. And when we got to step 12, she said, okay, I can hear someone. Thank you. Um, she said, okay, 
this is where the rubber meets the road, lady. You're sponsoring. And I'm going to walk you through it. I'm going to walk you through sponsoring the big book way. I think maybe you haven't done that. So as it relates to these pages, pages 90 and 91, first thing I have marked is when you discover a prospect, find out all you can about him or her. I make it a point to do that. I think it's really important. Sometimes it makes me uncomfortable. It makes them uncomfortable being a little nosy, but I need to find out everything I can. If you want me to sponsor you, I need to know about you. I need to know your ins and outs and your habits, and I don't do it all at once. I do it a little bit at a time because it can be overwhelming for someone. That is really important. Now, I haven't had the experience of speaking with family members. Um, I think that was a paradigm that was happening when this book was written and dealing with alcoholics. But what I have done is ask my prospect uh, what they think their family would say about their disease, about their eating, about their behavior. And that very often opens up an understanding about them and their habits. Um, I have had sponsees um, go back and forth with binging uh, and coming back and uh, starting over. And I have grace for that. And I let them know that I'm going to walk them through anything. The only thing that is hard for me, but I will try to work with you, is when we make agreements as a sponsor and a sponsee and you break them consistently. If that keeps happening over and over and over again, what that's saying to me is that you're not ready. And I'll be here for you as your friend and in fellowship. And when you know that you know that you're ready, I'm here to sponsor you. So that's what I have to do as it relates to these pages. Um, the family doesn't as much get involved in my experience. Um, the other thing that I've done, I've done several things with sponsees, but I'll, I'll say this as it relates to my schedule and this way of thinking about having a busy schedule and not being able to help someone. I talk to my sponsees immediately about my schedule. I say to them, I am committed to you, but my schedule is very erratic. I don't work nine to five. I don't work five days a week. Sometimes I work six. Sometimes I work seven. Sometimes I'm working two or three jobs at once. So if you can roll with me, I will roll with you. And that seems to work. Being upfront with people about what you can and cannot do, right? And having, of course, their interests first and figuring out a schedule together based on what you both can do. And it's working. I'm from New York, but right now I'm speaking to you from Northern California where I have a three-month job assignment. I'm going to be here until October. So my sponsees are on East Coast time and we are texting every day. I have a sponsee that's ready to do her step five. One minute, thank you. I have a sponsee that's ready to do her step five, and I have another who's ready to do eight, nine, and 10. So we're figuring it out, how to do it together. And we go back and forth and back and forth, and I've stopped worrying about doing it perfect. There is no perfect. All there is is recovery. 
what works for you in recovery based on the big book, what works for me in recovery based on the big book. And sometimes we have some little offshoots, but our foundation is the big book. That works for me, that works for my sponsees, and I'm grateful for this recovery, very, very grateful. I am still in the process of losing weight. I have about 50 pounds to lose, and I work with two sponsors. I work with a sponsor in the big book, and I work with a sponsor specifically for food, and that works for me. And so I thank you all for listening. I thank you for asking me to do service. Thank you everybody who does service for this meeting. And I'm very, very grateful to be a part of you all. Thanks for listening.